This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. When the jury panel comes into the courtroom and the bailiff says, all rise, I know we're here. And it doesn't matter who they are, nobody should be above the law. A lot of us talk about that, but you've actually done it. That's how you also maintain quality control over your practice. Yeah. That's a question I get asked a lot, and here's the answer. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation. Your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Welcome to another episode of Trial Lawyer Nation. Today on the show, I've invited automotive product liability attorney Julian Gomez to join us. Julian's a lawyer here in Texas, but he handles cases and speaks on this topic across the country. He's also the special liaison to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration on behalf of both AAJ and AIEG and is on the Texas Trial Lawyers Association Board of Directors. I think he's also Vice President for Continuing Education at TTLA. With so many people telling us that autonomous vehicles will eventually make personal injury law almost non-existent, I thought it would be a good idea to have Julian on the show so we can talk about it. We'll discuss everything from what to look for in a product liability case, to the perceptions people have that their vehicles are on autopilot, the six different levels of autonomous vehicles, and why the responsibility for predicting the unknown when driving is nearly impossible for a computer to do. This is a really important episode because when you hear all the people talk about the sky is falling, Julian's going to tell us why our practices are not going to go away and there's going to be a need for personal injury lawyers for the foreseeable future. It's a great conversation. Julian has a lot of valuable information to share, so let's start the show. Thanks for coming on today. Oh, thanks for having me, Mike. So, Julian, I wanted to uh, have you on because I heard you give a great talk on autonomous vehicles, and it's so different. Uh, every talk I'd ever heard is... We're going to get robot cars, they're never going to crash, and all the car wreck lawyers are going to be out of business in five years. So start learning to write a will or do a divorce. Uh, well, that's certainly what uh, the automobile manufacturers are promising. I don't know that that's really going to wind up being the case, and uh, certainly the data to date would suggest that that's not going to be the case. Okay, before we get into uh, autobo- you know, autonomous cars and self-driving or robot cars, as some people call them, I want to first talk a little bit about your background to see, you know, why the hell should we listen to you and what do you know? So how did you, uh, how did you go down the path that took you into becoming an expert on this issue? Well, uh, Mike, you can only connect the dots kind of looking backwards, right? Uh, when I was in law school, uh, I applied to clerk for a, a federal judge, in fact, the same federal judge that you clerked for, Ronaldo Garza, and uh, I knew I wanted to have that clerkship, and uh, when I got it, uh, the judge was already kind of older, and I, I knew that uh, if unfortunately he was to pass, I wanted to do at least have a clerkship on my resume. So I asked the judge if I could apply with the federal district court. Uh, the judge agreed, and uh, I had the good fortune of clerking for uh, United States District Judge Philly Monvela, who was the first uh, judge in the country to try a Ford Explorer Firestone case. And I was the law clerk for the tail end of that. Wow. And um, So you actually got to sit through that trial. I sat through that trial and uh, learned from some of the best lawyers in the country. And that's really what kind of piqued my interest in this kind of area. And actually, in fact, the first case I ever worked on, uh, I hung a shingle with uh, a Cooper Tire General Motors 
uh, automotive defect, Detroit case, and have been really kind of doing them ever since. In particular about autonomous cars, um, when I was the chairman of AAJ's product liability section, the chief disciplinary counsel for NHTSA was a man by the name of Tim Goodman. He had reached out to uh, at least start lines of communication between the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and consumer groups like ourselves, and ultimately uh, on behalf of a group of automotive products liability attorneys, which is called AIEG, or Attorney Information Exchange Group, they sent us to Washington to try and visit with NHTSA about some of the issues that consumers would face when these vehicles finally kind of come on the road. And so what did you do then to learn, to educate yourself uh, about autonomous vehicles? Well, you know, Mike, let me stop you here for just a second. Is There's really a misnomer kind of out there, and there's, uh, and, and I'm not saying it's intentional, but it's certainly something that's been recognized, is that there's kind of two categories of, of, of cars that are in existence broadcast, what I would call cars that are equipped with crash avoidance technologies, and that's what's available right now, and then autonomous cars, which are the cars that people think are going to drive themselves. And there's really six levels, zero, one, two, there's a line between two and three, then three, four, five. So three, four, five would be autonomous vehicles, zero through two, those would be regular vehicles, and then some vehicles that have got crash avoidance technologies. So crash avoidance technologies are systems, right? something that gathers data, something that processes data, and then something that makes the vehicle do something based on that data to avoid a crash. That's a crash avoidance technology. An autonomous vehicle is a vehicle made up of a bunch of crash avoidance technology systems that operate kind of in unison to drive the car without human input in either limited circumstances, that would be level three, or in all circumstances, level five. And so, um, saying autonomous vehicles, are, are, are you kind of asking me how I became an expert in level five or three through five, or just kind of this broad area of crash avoidance technologies and, and how it affects us today? Kind of the, the broad area, and I was actually going to ask you to define it later, but um, I think you've already started on that way. Yeah, the, the broad area, how, do you, how did you get this knowledge? Uh, well, it really kind of started by being able to do automotive products cases. That was where it started. Uh, there were some other attorneys that were on this committee that uh, they're engineers, much smarter than I am, and started really addressing, uh, I guess, the legal issues as opposed to the engineering issues behind them. Uh, conceptually, it, it's not necessarily very difficult, right? It's uh, that there literally is data gathering devices. Uh, they put those into a data processor. That it is processed according to an algorithm an answer or a result is spit out and then it makes the vehicle do something. Um, and I think sometimes we we can overcomplicate things and that's really what's happened in this area. I don't have to be a computer engineer to know that my computer's broken or to know that it's working. And that's, I guess, where I kind of got started and how I got started here. So what are the, you talked about, you know, what are the kind of autonomous vehicles and I, I mean I think a lot of people know about the level one level two like my car if someone suddenly stops in front of me and I'm not paying enough attention it will hopefully break for me right frontal collision avoidance uh, I guess that's one form of what a level what one or two or what would that be that would be a crash avoidance technology and and actually AAA came out with a 
you know, a little report a few weeks ago or maybe a month ago that talked about the confusion that's out there because one manufacturer will call it one thing, another manufacturer will call it something else, and another manufacturer will call it something else. NHTSA will call it one thing. The Society of Automotive Engineers calls it something that is what, what and the way how I like to kind of define them is, is there's really only a few ways that you can bring force to bear on a vehicle. You can force to bear from the front, the rear, the side, the roof, and usually not the bottom. And so you can stop a, a collision up in front. That's a frontal collision avoidance. And that would fall under either level one or level two, depending upon where, how automated. Is it a warning, right? Does it just beep or does it actually stop the vehicle? Uh, then the same would go for the sides. You have lane departure warning, right? That might be one. Th those have prevented me from being in more than one crash. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. The blind spot detection, right? That's the warning. Uh, probably some of the first kind of stuff that you might think about would are, were like parking sensors, right? Those same sensors are still on the vehicles today, and those are gathering the data that it's sending to the processor in the computer, or rather in the car, to tell you, hey, there's something either behind you or in front of you. Um, and those usually are either level one or level two type systems. Okay, then what's the level three system? So um, if you can, you know, close your eyes and you can picture hands on a wheel, right? Uh -huh. uh, and that would maybe be symbolic of, of driver input is that at level three, it starts kind of graying out right it where it can start doing things on its own uh, and that would be under a limited number of circumstances and on the opposite end or would be level five is that it can drive itself all the time anywhere uh, in reality there are no level three vehicles available to any consumer today and all of the news that you hear about driverless cars that are out there in smaller areas there are still test drivers on all of those vehicles, unless you're in a very, very small area that they're running some type of tests or something like that. But for example, Waymo, who's probably the leader in the industry, they say, well, we have a driverless fleet. No, they don't. They've got a safety driver in that car at the same time, still today. And, and even you know, with this you know, so-called autonomous vehicles on the road that are supposed to be so safe, have they had any tragedies? Absolutely. Unfortunately, um, they have had several tragedies um, and really the, that's what we know about so the way how they measure how well an autonomous vehicle three four or five the testing that's going on how they measure that is what are called disengagements and so uh, they recently the only place that you can get that information unless you're the manufacturer for example Apple doesn't share its information with Tesla and Tesla doesn't share its information with Waymo uh, and Waymo doesn't share with Uber is really in the state of California and so they have to sell the federal government it's a voluntary reporting system and they don't report the disengagements but in California they do and what just came out is kind of on the bottom end of the spectrum is Apple and Apple had a disengagement. What's a disengagement? That would be where the, the uh, autonomous vehicle, the driver, the human driver has to take over uh, instead of the car driving itself. And so that's how you measure kind of the problems that it's had. And I believe Apple had almost uh, like one every 1.2 miles or something oh like that. Oh my gosh. 
Now, Waymo on the opposite end of the spectrum is uh, had one maybe every 10, 11,000 miles, right? So it's a big disparity between the top and the bottom in, in doing that. But so that's what they're measuring if something bad has happened. But there's been multiple deaths already, in fact. And I don't know, there was uh, a news report yesterday, I believe, that there was a Tesla crash again, that uh, the vehicle crashed and battery exploded and there was fire. Um, I don't know if that vehicle was in autopilot or not. That's Tesla's uh, nomenclature for their crash avoidance technology. Um, but well before that, there was the Uber out in Phoenix. Uh, there's been some in China. There was another one in Florida. Uh, there's been several um, unfortunate events with these vehicles. And the real problem is that there haven't had enough vehicle miles driven to really know how safe they're going to be. And if you take, um, right now in the United States, um, we drive hundreds of millions of, of vehicle miles, uh, and we have about 40, 45,000 deaths every year. If you take the number of vehicle miles driven when Uber had its fatality, and you extrapolate that to the number of vehicle miles that are driven in the United States in non uh, crash avoidance technology equipped cars or autonomous uh, vehicle cars, if you extrapolate that out, you're looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of around 1.6 million deaths. Oh my gosh. Uh, and so let's, you know, cut that in half and cut it in half and cut it in half and cut it in half. It's still way, way, way more than what's going on today. Um, but the reality is there just haven't been enough vehicle miles driven to know whether they're going to really be, if that promise that they make of them being safer is true or not. What are the technical challenges that keep the computer from knowing what all's around and what to do? Everything is the technical, I mean, literally everything is the technical challenge. The real problem lies in the interaction between kind of a, an objective system, the, the computer uh, or the algorithm is an objective system. It's a binary system, right? It's a switch. You know, any computer at the end of the day is just a switch. Electricity is either on or off, right? It's a binary system that's objective and then working with a human system which is subjective. And oftentimes we as humans don't act in rational ways. Although they may be predictable, uh, they're not necessarily rational. And you, you can see that the way how autonomous cars interact. For example, if you came up to uh, a red light and you were going to turn right, a lot of people, albeit incorrectly, don't stop. They just kind of roll through. And you can gauge that having looked at cars your entire life, right? You didn't just start driving at 16. You looked at cars when you were two, three, four, five, six, all the way on through. You've seen that, oh, they don't always stop there, and you can gauge that car is not going to stop, or I have enough space, whereas these cars, this is what the rule is, and this is what I'm going to do. And humans just don't act that way, certainly not all the time. I think the other thing is, you know, if you got, you're relying on a camera, what happens when it's raining? What happens if the lens gets a little <laughs> dirty, you know? Uh, you know, we, we were talking a little bit beforehand, and I, I, I didn't tell you that I just got back from Colorado, and uh, I was driving on I-70. And so if you've been in Colorado, that's the, the interstate that cuts it east and west. And it starts snowing. And I don't mean a little snowing. I mean it's snowing. You can't see 
the line for the left side of the lane. You can't see the dotted line in between the two lanes, and you couldn't see the yellow line on the far right side. And oftentimes, you're driving over two lanes, and the other car is driving next to you over two lanes and partially in the shoulder. But you can't know that because you can't see it with your eyes. And sometimes cameras can see things that the human eye can't, but they're not going to be able to see that. You can't see a white line through white snow. I guess another problem is that you know the computer can only do what it's programmed to do, and there are so many situations that we just instinctively make a, a decision without even thinking. I mean, I can only imagine the task of the engineer that has to think of every possibility and then the safest outcome of every possibility. Well, that's, again, that's the real kind of problem, is second only to breathing, what do you do more than anything else? Probably see, right? It's not talking. It's, you know, probably not really listening. It's that you're seeing stuff. And so we've been processing things as humans for our entire lives since day one, right? So these computers haven't processed enough stuff. And there's some folks that are out there that'll say that for a computer to be able to process as much data as we have seen, it would be the size of a warehouse, not the size of a car, much less the size of a computer in a car. And so they just don't, the, the hardware itself isn't of that size. And then to anticipate the unknown, it, it, it's like, tell me everything that you don't know. Well, you can't, right? That's that's the problem with the system. And if the algorithm that decides what the car is supposed to do hasn't anticipated that, that's where the problem lies. And so I do believe eventually they'll be able to predict it because they will have seen enough scenes. But there will always be something unexpected, irrational, because that's human nature. Let's talk about that Uber uh death that unfortunately happened in Arizona? Yes. So what happened in that incident? Well, so if, uh, and I may be slightly off on the times, but the vehicle itself picked up on the pedestrian that was up in front of it. So, so basically what happened in the crash first? Okay, so there, there's uh, a pedestrian who's there, the pedestrian crosses the road, and the vehicle hits the pedestrian in a, what I would call a frontal collision, right? Force was brought to bear on the front of the vehicle. Uh, so the vehicle picked up on that. But here's what was kind of interesting is that, you remember we were talking about the disengagements, right? right. So at that time, Uber's was having disengagements about one every mile, two mile, so they turned off the frontal collision emergency braking because if not, you would be going, stop, go, stop, go, stop, go, stop, go. And so that was turned off. Oh, my gosh. And that was the, I guess, emergency driver's responsibility to have stopped. But because the driver was lulled kind of into compliance, this is an auto drive, it's an autonomous car, it takes care of itself, that person wasn't paying attention. So the driver actually picked up, and I've got some video of it, picks up the pedestrian, but it's too late, and he can't bring the car to stop in enough time. And so to kind of give you an idea, you know, I'm not privy, I wasn't involved in that case, but I have been doing literally automotive products since my first case. That's 2001. It's 2019 now. 
the attorney that got that case was like a family law or a probate law lawyer, and they settled that case in 10 days. Wow. Right? I know you've never done that. I've never done that. Right? It's a year. It's a two-year. It's three years. Sometimes it's more than that. Sometimes you even go through a whole trial, and you still can't settle the case. Is that that case was settled in 10 days, if that's any kind of indication as to how Uber felt about the culpability. And the NTESB uh, went and did a report after that, and that's how they know that the darn brakes were turned off. And so I just want to get this straight. So in this case, the, the technology that recognized, hey, they did identify this as a pedestrian, because the camera has to see an object and figure out, okay, this is the person. Right. It's not a lamp. It's not a tree. And this person is moving to where I need to hit my brake to avoid hitting them. But because the they had so many, it cried wolf so many times. There are so many times where it thought it needed to break that it didn't. They had to turn it off because they couldn't drive. Right. And so think about it, though. Um, uh, I'm sure you've used a computer, right? We all use computers. And you sign in, and, they, and then you have that little CAPTCHA thing, right? It wants to prove that you're a human right. and not a computer. Well, what does it ask you to identify? It asks you to identify pedestrians, fire hydrants, right. uh, cars, bicycles, uh, crosswalks. That's how the computer distinguishes between a human and a computer. And that's because you got this big desktop and all the powerful stuff behind it, right? And so the, the vehicle did, it, it spotted something. It, it doesn't know that it was necessarily a pedestrian. It, it spotted something. It knew it should have stopped, but it was disengaged because of those problems. And the backup driver was supposed to have, or the emergency driver should have applied the brakes, but unfortunately wasn't. And probably the if the backup driver didn't think the computer would drive for him, he may have been paying better attention oh, and avoided. Absolutely. And, that, and that's the inherent problem in the system, right, is uh, they're marketed, right? And if when you think autopilot, right, so the, the, they use that with planes, they use it with boats, is that that means auto, automatic, pilot. It's going to automatically pilot itself. That's not where the technology is at. It's marketed some that way. The technology is, is, is somewhat rather limited in what it can really do, at least for us as consumers that we can purchase right now, but you think that it is, and because it can be foreseeably misused, then they warn about it. But as you know, that's not really how it, it should work, is that if there's a foreseeable misuse and that misuse can be engineered out, manufacturers and designers are obligated to do that. But that's not what's happening here. They want their cake and eat it too. Well, the other thing it seems to me is like the marketing department saying one thing and the warding buried in the owner's manual saying the opposite. Well, and, and you know that from doing auto products yourself. That's exactly what happens, right? Is safety sells, but then they don't want the responsibility that comes with the safety. They want to be able to say, that's your fault. And you can look at how some of these crashes have occurred in the past. Is it immediately the manufacturers come out and blame the driver. And they've done that historically, no matter what the defect is, whether it's a defect in a crash avoidance technology, or if it's a defect in a seat belt, it's a defect in a seat, any type of defect, the automobile manufacturers, not always, but normal responses, blame the driver. Yeah. And, there's, and that is carried over still to today. We'll return to part two of this podcast in just a moment. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide. Are you an attorney with a catastrophic injury or wrongful death case you'd like to discuss with host Michael Cowan? If so, you can reach Michael by calling 
1301 or send an email to michael at cowanlaw.com. We now return to the rest of this episode of Trial Lawyer Nation. So are there, you said there's no uh, truly autonomous vehicle on the road today, level three or above? Well, of commercially available. Well, what about the Tesla? Don't they have autopilot? Well, um, you know, we went to lunch right now, and you saw how that works. Yeah, well, tell us about that. What, what, what is the, the Tesla? And the reason I'm asking is, you know, I saw on I'm on an Internet college football forum, because you and I both went to A&M called Texax, and Whoop. there was someone that said, like, this is so unfair. Someone got a DWI on a Tesla, but they had the autopilot on, and they weren't really driving. Well, that's um – that's what the marketing department would like you to believe, that you're not really driving, but the Office of General Counsel for any of these companies would very strongly say that uh, that you're still the driver. Um, well, what does it do and what does it not do? Well, it's very situational dependent, right? And so you, you don't want to paint it necessarily with a, with a, with a broad stroke, but it should, right? It should, in a low-speed type of scenario, whether you are engaged in autopilot, if you've got frontal collision avoidance, and I'm using that term to call what whatever the manufacturer may call it, stop the vehicle automatically if there's something in front of you. Should, right? Um, what uh, the one though that more like what I think most people kind of in their mind kind of envision is, you get to your car, you type in "take me to." Uh, ABC restaurant like we're going to go eat and uh, then we're able to talk and communicate and the car drives itself that doesn't exist commercially available but I did drive from South Texas up here today right Uh, I plugged in your office and uh, drove down the highway and the vehicle was able to stay within the lanes sometimes (laughs) right there there was some disengagements Uh, it can't handle everything uh, but the vehicle will slow down, for example, if it senses that there's a car in front of it that's traveling a little bit slower than what you're traveling. Uh, the cars will not change lanes by themselves to pass other vehicles. Um, they're starting to sometimes maybe be able to take an exit, but they really can't drive in the city and recognize that that's a stoplight or a stop sign. Um, for example, in South Texas, as you know, we have Border Patrol checkpoints about 60 miles north of the border. Uh, over there, they're doing some uh, construction right now. So they had the concrete divisional barriers between lanes, and one of the barriers was over the line that demarked the what would have been the, I guess, the left-hand side of the lane. So the barriers inside the lane, the car didn't see it. Wow. So I had to take over, switch lanes, because there would not have been enough time for the car to break. We just would have hit the barrier, right? And so it's not perfect. Um, And in fact, you know, uh, Mr. Musk, who is the the head of Tesla, or at least he used to kind of be, um, he came out on the CBS morning show and conceded as much. He said that, that, you know, uh, the autopilot system will never be perfect. Um, and, and it's just, it's not. It's, uh, but that's not how it's being marketed. It's not being marketed where, look, you really have to be in charge. It's not really autopilot. Uh, even though we call it autopilot, it's being marketed that this thing's wonderful and it's gonna, the car's going to drive itself. And, you know, that is where I think some of the rub has kind of happened, at least from a, 
a legal point of view is who's responsible when these things kind of happen. And that was actually my next question. So given the level of automation available today, when there is a crash and the vehicle is equipped with crash avoidance technology that should have but did not prevent the crash, you know, what are the situations where you, a plaintiff's lawyer should just go after the other driver? And what are the situations where they should consider, you know, I need to look in to see, is there a claim against auto manufacturer? Well, so um, I had the honor of working for Jim Purdue when I was in law school. And Mr. Purdue kind of gave me a system for understanding how to, to evaluate cases. And arguably, as, as plaintiff's attorneys, that's maybe the thing that we need to do best. Yeah. Right? If we take bad cases and litigate them, we are going to wind up with bad law, which is ultimately going to be bad for consumers who we're really trying to protect. And so if you're thinking of litigating a automotive products liability case based on a theory that a crash avoidance technology system is defective, at the top of Mr. Purdue's pyramid is damages. It's going to cost a lot of money. And if you don't have the damages that are going to justify this litigation, and it's in its infancy right now, it's not going to be worth it. So if you've got a fender bender, right, and you have somebody with um, some soft tissue damage that's going to go to a, a chiropractor, maybe it's going to get some pain management type injections, that type of a case would not warrant any type of products liability theory, much less an emerging products liability theory like crash avoidance technology. On the other hand, if you've got a case that appears very clear cut, right, you've got a, an impact that the car should have been uh, have stopped in a frontal collision avoidance type of scenario. Uh, the consumer or your plaintiff was belted, um, was doing what they were supposed to do, and you got to be careful uh, because I promise you that the the people that hold the data are the people you're going to be suing. That that's not manipulated. If you feel confident that that your client has done what they should have done or what was reasonable for them to have done, and this technology could have prevented that injury. I think those are the kind of cases that are starting to make their way through the system and that would be viable right now. So basically you need something where it was, if the vehicle was equipped with it, it appears fairly clearly that it didn't work and you have like death, someone in a wheelchair, uh, maybe loss of limb, I mean something major, major. Uh, and it's um, death, paralysis, burns, worse, you know, just, right. just very, very catastrophic type of injuries uh, because uh, otherwise the damages model is not the case. And this is actually one of the hardest things that I had to kind of learn as, as a plaintiff's attorney is that we cannot help everybody. And if we try to help everybody, we're going to be able to help nobody. And so we are, the, the nature of our business is that we've got to finance the litigation. And we have to pick and choose which litigation we finance. And so it would make no economic sense to spend three to $500,000 on a case where the damages model is only 100000 And also, there needs to be money left over for the client. The right. clients aren't yeah. hiring us to prove a social point. Absolutely. The clients are hurt. They need compensation. And we can't get it for them, especially if the driver, which is usually a simpler case, although now I think increasingly they're going to be trying to blame the car, but the, the driver typically has insurance that on those kind of cases can provide 
a better net recovery than trying to do a product case when there's insufficient damages. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that are, well, when's this going to happen? Well, well, what, what, when did, I, for the, I, I had the opportunity between my two clerkships, I worked for Fred Barron at, at Barron and Bud uh, for a little bit. And I remember asking Mr. Barron about uh, how long asbestos and mesothelioma cases were going to be around. And because uh, we were talking about me working there after I finished clerking. And he assured me correctly now that mesothelioma would be around for my entire lifetime. Unfortunately, that's Unfortunately, true. Unfortunately, that, that has wound up being true. And so I, I firmly believe that the car wreck case that is now kind of going on is going to be around for the foreseeable future. And if you look at really the leader in the autonomous car space, which would be Waymo, they're even saying that. The CEO has come out and said, look, autonomous vehicles are not going to be able to drive in all conditions all the time. It's just not going to happen. I heard quotes, I mean, maybe GM saying they're going to make a, a vehicle without a steering wheel any year now. Well, I, and, and I, I wish I could get to all my stuff fast enough, but I've got that photo. I've got that news story. And GM, and I can't remember if it's 2019 or 2020, and they had this schematic of this beautiful-looking interior of a vehicle with just two passenger seats, right? So uh, how do you just, and simply put, how do you get past the Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards that require you have to have a steering wheel, right? Pushing the, the regulatory issues aside is that they may make that car, but it's going to be able to drive around your neighborhood, right? It, it's not going to, so if you go, let's say, for example, to the Austin airport, and you fly into the Austin airport now, uh, it used to be that the uh, ride-sharing vehicles could pick you up right there at the gate. Now you've got to walk across the street. You've got to kind of go up an elevator. A golf cart picks you up, and it drives you through a parking lot and over to another area where uh, the ride-sharing vehicles pick you up. So that could be a place, maybe where an autonomous vehicle, where you'll, you'll start seeing autonomous vehicles kind of in closed systems where they can predict, like you were talking about, all of the potential outcomes. Like there could be a car, behind, person behind this person, you know, behind this car and not this car. Person behind these two cars. How do we decide which way we go? Do we go left or right? Do we, if we have to run into something, do we run into the two people instead of the three people? You know, it, 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 those are the kind of questions that still haven't been answered. And what's really still being debated who's supposed to answer those questions is it yeah. going to be the manufacturers is it going to be the government regulators is it going to be the politicians who are going to pass laws um th those are really very 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 difficult questions so you, you don't expect gm or any other manufacturer to actually start selling driverless vehicles to the public anytime soon not in a mass-produced way and and i i'm not uh uh, I guess I'm an economist by training. Is I am not a fortune teller. And what, if if you study kind of price theory, is what the price of what the price was yesterday is not an indication of what the price will be tomorrow, right? And so the fact that we are not selling those cars today doesn't mean that we're not going to be selling them tomorrow. But my best educated guess is that, and if I knew, believe me, I would be a billionaire and not have my jet, and we'd be flying, you know, we'd be in Bora Bora. Is that my best educated guess is that that's at least 10, 15 years away to where you have it on any kind of a mass kind of produced scale other than kind of in areas in isolation or under specialty type of circumstances like what's kind of going on on the, on the highway. But the ability to jump into your car and say, hey, take me to the grocery store car um, and for the car to be able to back out, safely get to the grocery store, park, 
you come in, put your groceries in, hey, let's go back home, and in the middle of the ride say, oh, you know what, I need to go put, um, so I need to go pick up the dry cleaner, let's go to the dry cleaner, and the car to be able to make that choice, make a U-turn or turn at the car, that's, that's still years and years away. And even when those cars start going on the market, it doesn't mean that's every car that's going to be sold. Well, so if you think about what it means to kind of be American, right? If you, you go back, and uh, unfortunately we're not 16 anymore, but think about what it felt like to be 16. The freedom of driving yourself places is huge, right? It's just, it was exciting. It was a, a, a neat time in your life. Is part of driving and driving yourself is part of Americana. And, and I'm not so sure that folks are going to willingly give that up. I'm not either. And I think people, you know, I know that I can't have a computer, even with an IT company. We, we're with Dayhill now. It's owned by Xerox. I thought they'd at least be good. But even with Dayhill behind us, uh, we cannot get a computer to work correctly for over six to eight months at a time. Look, it, it happens to everybody. I don't care if you're a PC or, or a Mac, if you have an Android or an iOS phone, uh, electronics inherently mess up. And well, why? Well, because they're made by humans, right? And if, if they were made by a robot, the robot was made by a human. And if the robot wasn't, it was at least programmed by a human. So those, uh, it, it's inevitable that there's going to be some kind of problem. And I just don't really see it happening for a while under a best case scenario. And certainly never, and again, the leader in the space, it's never gonna happen in all industries. I mean, we're from South Texas, right? You've been to the ranch before. I mean, how's the guy who runs a cattle ranch that tows uh, a 20, 40 foot trailer behind his truck gonna back that up to a corral, right? How, right now there's military vehicles that are autonomous, but the problem they have is they can't get those vehicles into the service bay to service them. And you know what they do? They take a little Nintendo or the game kind of, <laughs> no, I'm being serious. They take the game joysticks, they plug that in, and that's how they drive that vehicle up onto the service bay. And so, you know, in, in kind of the space that you work, right, I, I'm relatively confident that there will be truck drivers almost forever. Think of like an, an offshore vessel, like the big container boats, right? So when they come to port, the captain of that ship doesn't drive or navigate that, that vessel in. You have a pilot. They yeah. go out there in, in the boat, they get on the vessel, and then they say, look, hey, there's a sandbar over here. we got to come this other way. And they navigate and drive that vessel. So think of any kind of these big warehouses that are up and down here. You have folks that are going into oil fields on the big trucks. Even if you've got the autonomous 18-wheelers, there's still going to have to be at some point some kind of human interaction because there's too many places that automobiles, and that would include the heavy trucks, have got to go. They're just going to have to be done by humans. And even if they started having 100% of the cars tomorrow uh, being autonomous, you're still going to have a decade or two of the existing cars to be on the road. Absolutely. And again, I can't predict the future, but I could foresee, let's say, uh, Manhattan, right? Like it's a closed area. It's a contained system where they say, in Manhattan, we're, you're not going to be able to drive your own car. If you want to own a car, you're going to have to keep it in New Jersey. 
Uh, and you can drive it over there, but if you want to drive on the streets of Manhattan, it's going to have to be uh, an autonomous vehicle that drives itself. I mean, that's kind of foreseeable. Or like an HOV lane, right? Uh, where they say right now you got to have a few people in the vehicle to get in the lane. Maybe this is going to be an autonomous vehicle lane where they know that these vehicles can go nonstop and they're not going to have the human interaction. That may be kind of something that, that develops. But widespread, exclusive use of cars that drive themselves without human input we got to there's that's not happening so, not not soon so our listeners that do car wreck law don't need to start learning how to draft a will today um uh, no <laughs> I, and again i mean you, you, i can't predict the future but i certainly don't think so and i'm not going out trying to learn how to draft wills and do that that stuff i i, I think that this area um, it's a new technology. I think there's a lot of hype behind it. I think that some of the best marketers in the United States are behind some of this stuff. And because they understand public relations and how to keep it in the news and how to feed information to the general public, it's something that we're hearing a whole bunch about. But uh, and, and I don't know about this year. I haven't looked at them. But I know last year, they're still trucks that are on the road, and I'm talking like regular trucks, not even 18-wheelers, that don't have adaptive cruise control, which is the cruise control that keeps the distance between the cars. Yeah. Right? And, and that's a brand new car last year, right? That's a 2018. You know, what's the, you know, if you go based on the, the kind of loan that you would get at the car dealership, I think they do loans for 60, 72 months, right? That's five, six years that the expectation, at least from the banks, that that vehicle is going to be on the road. So there's at least that amount of time. I don't think the banks would, would say this car is worthless after three years and, and it's just not going to happen. Absolutely not. Trial Lawyer Nation is proud to partner with Trial Guides, leader in continuing education for civil plaintiff and criminal defense trial lawyers with books, DVDs, CLEs, live webinars, and more. Visit trialguides.com and use code TLN19 at checkout to receive our exclusive podcast discount on any Trial Guides products. That's TLN for Trial Lawyer Nation and the number 19. Discount expires August 31st, 2019. And now, back to the show. So besides, I guess you've learned a lot about this autonomous vehicles. Is any of your actual practice involved in an autonomous vehicle case yet? So we have consulted on one case, and there just haven't really been enough out there yet. Uh, there's some failure to warn cases that are kind of going through the, the system right now. Um, those are, um, you know, when you're the first person to climb Mount Everest, it's a tough, it's a tough feat. Uh, and those cases are, are kind of happening. Uh, but we've really only consulted on one because there's, there's been so few vehicle miles that have been traveled that there's only been a few deaths. Well, something else I always want to do, when I have someone like you that, that's, that knows what's going on in the area so people can know what kind of cases to look for if they have them, what are the kind of automotive defect cases you see right now that are happening that you guys are litigating? Well, so I saw um, if you get – we're here in San Antonio, and maybe you get the Austin Statesman um, – was a news article came out a week or two ago that in the Austin Statesman that more people are dying from tire failures than from cell phone distracted driving. Today. 
there's some things about the stats on distracted driving that we talked to you about that they, they those are woefully underreported, but there's still a lot of people dying of tire effects. Right, but and so I think what and, and so I went and looked that up myself is that so the distracted driving I think they're saying from cell phone use only as opposed to other types of. But more than half the time they found when an officer, when someone tells the police officer that they were on the phone, half the time they don't mark down distracted driving as a cause because they just write down the failure to control speed or running the stoplight or whatever it was. Uh, they actually did a study where they put cameras now this was done with younger drivers but they right. put cameras in car, like a large fleet of cars knowing that you know some of them are going to get wrecks and they found at least in the under 25 population like over 60 percent of the drivers were distracted now not all by cell phones but right. it was a a huge huge cause oh i i, I absolutely Sorry so no 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 absolutely no but that's <laughs> but, tire but that's failure is still a big issue but, but no but so distracted driving right that that's that's a huge issue absolutely it, it, it's a huge issue um and I was talking about that particular article. I'm not attesting to the yeah. veracity of it, but it did come out. But so the way how I look at it, um, you don't have to be an engineer to do these cases. You, you, and, and oftentimes I think it can be detrimental to you. And so the first thing that you look for is a case with, with damages, right? And so if you really think about what we do as plaintiff's attorneys is we serve our clients. And so... How do we serve our clients? Well, we try to take the money that's on the other table and bring that to our clients' table to make their lives better, uh, whether that's for health care, whether it's putting the deceased kids through college, whether it's providing for the mom, uh, whatever it may be, that's really what we're trying to do. Is we're trying to make our clients' lives better. And so sometimes there's a negligent defendant that you can um, hold responsible. And sometimes that negligent defendant can't respond fully for the amount of damages because of a limitation of insurance or no insurance or assets to satisfy what what your folk needs so the first thing that i look for is is damages that are not being compensated somewhere else right and so what does that mean and we kind of talked about it really catastrophic type of injuries death burn paralysis traumatic brain injury amputation and that's kind of the starting point because the reality is most of these cases cost several hundred thousand dollars to work up. And if you don't have a damages model to, to satisfy that, then it's not going to be an economically viable case. And then the second thing that you look for is, is there something that happened in the car or could have happened to the car that could have prevented the injury, right? So like the tire, did the tread come off of a tire? Uh, in kind of a crashworthiness type case, which could be from the side, right? A side impact, a frontal impact, a rear impact. Did the safety canopy, the area that the folks are sitting in, did that kind of collapse and cause some problems? Did the seat belt kind of work? Did the airbag look like it worked? If the airbag didn't work, is that something that could have prevented this injury, right? Uh, you're, you're looking to see if something could have prevented it or caused it. And that's really all you kind of need to do is if you get too hyper-technical with, well, I think the seatbelt retractor was, uh, you know, if you get into that type of technicality, you're going to miss the forest for the trees. That's what we hire experts for. And uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the time commitment and the focus that's required to do one of these cases. When I started doing these cases, they actually were easier because, let's say you had a General Motors roof, you know, car rolls over the roof comes in it's either 4gm chrysler or the big three in the u.s we've and, done one together you and i yeah and there was a 
you know, organizations, you could basically talk to somebody else. You can get these are the hot doc, the best documents on the case. These are depots taken in other cases, and you could, with a fairly, you get through a little bit of learning curve. You could learn how to do one of these cases and do them quite well without a whole lot of work. Now they seem to be a lot more one-off cases, a lot more. The law is not as good about sharing. A lot of courts are not uh, permitting as much sharing as they should or they used to. Uh, but it's just a lot more like it's not, there's not like 200 of the same cases going on anymore. We used to be able to, we'd all meet, we'd collaborate, and you have to do a lot more yourself nowadays. Well, there's, and, and thankfully, right? Thankfully, cars are safer today than they were, let's say, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, it's an improvement, right? If you just look at, you know, we live longer today than we did 20 years ago. The cars, the cars are improving. So, yes, there's definitely less automotive defects that are on the road in vehicles that are manufactured last year, this year. There's no, there's no doubt about that. Because of that, you've got the type of issues that you're talking about where you don't have 450 detreads that happened this last year in the southern region that are attributable to this one automobile, excuse me, this one tire manufacturer, right? That's not happening anymore. That's good. That's yep. good. Um, and so the time commitment that involves is you've got to, you do have to essentially climb out Mount Everest this first time, right? And it's maybe not that arduous that it's that there's no other cases. When you start kind of digging into it, you figure, oh well, okay, I had one. There's another one that happened in Kentucky. There's one in Wisconsin, and there. I do think that automotive products liability attorneys more so maybe than some other folks, we do tend to collaborate as much as we possibly can. We do share information. Uh, we do still meet. Uh, but in terms of time, I think budgeting any less than two or three years for that case is unrealistic. Well, I'm just saying well, not just the time span, but the time of attention, the time of focus. Because, for example, I know, like in my trucking cases, there's going to be games being played on documents and discovery, but there's a, a standard set of stuff that I'm going to get without too much of a house in every case. Right. In an automotive, or tire tire makers are the worst. In a tire case, they're going to claim that everything's a trade secret. Yes. Uh, they're going to claim, they're going to fight on just basic, basic, like I'm having a fight with a tire maker right now. Okay, they, they finally gave me, these are our specifications for our manufacturing standards. Right. Uh, but they won't tell me how they came up with them. I'm like, okay, you say this is the rule. You say if it, if it meets this, it's safe. If it doesn't, it's not. Right. How did you come up with this? Well, well that's a trade secret. We're not going to tell you. Uh, well, th I'm, <laughs> I'm impressed that you got the, the standards, right? Uh, I'm not going to lie. I have fought two and a half years, two and a half years, just to get a protective order to see documents before, yeah. right? I mean, so. Um, well, I fought a year and a half over, okay, so my person bought a used vehicle in Texas that had the tires on them that were not the original tires. It was a 20-year-old vehicle. The tires were only 14 years old at the time of the crash. Uh, from the time that the vehicle was, from the time these tires were made, every owner of the vehicle lived in Texas. Right. But nobody could remember we went back buying these specific tires. Sure. Although, but we showed that, you know, we pled that it was more likely than not sold in Texas, new. Uh, but the manufacturer, how do you know that someone didn't buy a used tire? How do you know it wasn't initially? So they, we had Texas resident in a crash in Texas, a company that does, sells hundreds of thousands well, of tires yeah, for years. I know where this is going. <laughs> and we spent a year and a half messing with jurisdiction before they gave up on it, uh, before, we, and we couldn't do any merits discovery. And now, you know, just getting anything, just basic, basic stuff is pulling teeth. So there's no doubt that uh, a few years ago and, um, 
obviously being a, a federal appellate court clerk, you know, one of the things of being with, with Michael Cowan is if you're in the room with Michael Cowan, you know you're with the smartest man in the room. And, and so I know you know jurisdiction and, and that you've been on top of this stuff, is that these manufacturers decided a few years ago, well, if we didn't sell the product in this state, we're going to fight it. Yeah. And they have chosen to, in, even in questionable cases, right, they don't mind losing because they've got unlimited funds and time. And time is their friend, and it, time is justice's enemy. And so if they can fight you on... Issue A, they'll fight you on issue A. If they can fight you on issue B, they'll fight you on issue B. If they can fight you on issue th C, they'll fight you on issue C, C. And if they can give you half of C, well, they're fine with that too unless you go back and make them give you the rest of C. And that's just their modus operandi. I mean, I've got another case. Uh, they marked every document as confidential. So I'm, I took the uh, – it's a trailer manufacturer. It's a rear underwrite case. Right. And I took the deposition of the corporate rep last week and asked him to explain – what is this page? Oh, it's a page for the Federal Register. Okay, that's published by the federal government. Yes, anyone can see that. Do you know why it's marked confidential? Oh, yeah. That happens all the time. They give you advertising that's marked as confidential. Exactly. You're like, like, do you don't want anyone to see your ads? <laughs> you know, and so it's, but they make you go through those hoops because they don't want you to share anything with other plaintiff lawyers. And, but then you have to take your time to go back and have a court hearing on something that's not going to make you money but to help the next person. And what I've discovered on these cases, and and I'm become if I do any more of these auto product cases, I'm going to be incredibly selective on them because they take so much time and focus that if I don't have a practice that allows me to dedicate the amount of time and focus it, you need to do the case right, then I should let someone else do it because it's not doing my client a service uh, to do that because they do need incredible uh, – and I don't think you have to be a genius to do them. You have to have money, unfortunately, or someone working with you with money, but somebody needs to – you know, review the stuff and constantly call the defendant on their BS and constantly file your motions and constantly, you know, they'll give you like 100,000 pages of non-responsive stuff and then you have to go through it and then explain to the court when they come say, well, judge, we've produced 100,000 pages of documents. Yes, judge, but they haven't produced what we asked for. They produced a bunch of other junk. Right. And that, that's, it's almost, um, they've learned that they can get away with that. And, and I don't, I'm not in any way trying to be critical of the judiciary, but if, if they could get called on their you-know-what and be held accountable, they would stop doing a lot of that. But they, and there have been some lawyers like that you know that they can't practice in this state anymore. They can't do that anymore because they've been caught doing that, and, and courts have held these attorneys accountable. And that's really where that starts. And it is almost like um, you have got to set the tone in your litigation when you litigate against these type of manufacturers that we're not going to put up with your antics. And I think the other issue is, you know, I, back when we had paper documents, I had a, a lawyer, like we settled a case and he goes, when we, we had to, unfortunately, we had to return the documents as part of the settlement. He goes, wow, you guys actually opened them. I go, what do you mean? He goes, you know, 90% of the cases we have, when we get the documents back, they still have the original tape. No one ever read them. And I think what they've realized is there are a lot of people there that get someone else's discovery, and they send it out. They don't know what they're looking at. They don't fight them on anything, and then they end up taking whatever settlement offer is given at a mediation, which is probably one-tenth of the value of the case, and they go home, and they know that they can get away with it on a substantial percentage of their cases. Well, th there's no doubt about that. And you can make money doing that, but it's not the right thing for the client. And look, I can, I, I've done the math. I could do auto product cases with that model and cash flow positive and add several hundred thousand dollars to my annual income. But as a craftsman, it doesn't 
make me happy. And as a someone, I would rather you take that case. And you know, let's say a case that I, that without putting the focus in, I could get let's say three hundred thousand dollars on, and you could get two million dollars on it because you have the time to do it right now. I could do it right, but that means I have to take time away from a case that I think I can settle for fifteen million dollars against an oil-filled trucker which frankly is an easier and more fun case to do for me. Uh, so I would rather let you do that case than try to be selfish, even though it would make me more money to keep them. Well, I, I appreciate that. There certainly is some kind of specialty or knowledge that comes with it. And some things you can do faster because you've already done it before. Um, but really, you know, the kind of the word that, that we've thrown around here is service. And at the end of the right. day, we got to really remember uh, I like to use the analogy in my office, like I'm a shoe salesman, right? I literally, if you go and buy shoes and you have someone that's attending to you, they get down on their knees to help you out. They serve you. And as attorneys, I feel sometimes we've kind of lost that focus is that we need to get down on our knees and serve our clients. And to do these cases, you do have to go through all of the documents or know where the documents are beforehand and know exactly what to get for and what to ask for. And that's something very often that'll drive a case. If you know exactly where that pressure point is and you ask for that document and you make a court give it to you, it's amazing how quickly uh, the defendant sometimes can become uh, reasonable in what they believe the yeah, value of the case is. I've seen that happen before. We get, a, we, said we get the right discovery order and suddenly, <laughs> can we mediate? <laughs> yeah. and, and I'll tell you something else that I thought was kind of where they said that you had opened the box and looked at it. I had a defendant in open court want to give me the documents in an electronic hard drive. And I got the defendant to concede on the record that they put tracking devices on the hard drive to see what documents you opened and looked at, which violates our work product. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there's, there, there, uh, there's, you don't know what they're doing to you unless you know what they're doing to you. And unfortunately, kind of the only way to figure that out is to, to kind of get in there and, and get bumped around here and there a few times and see what's happened to somebody else. It happens to you. Uh, but, but certainly, I agree with you. You do not have to be a genius. You've just got to be willing to put the work in to, to kind of go through everything. And I think the other thing is to realize that you don't have to do everything yourself. I mean, if you have a good case, you know, somebody will come in and do it with you. Someone will come in and so you know, it's not – I think the automotive product plaintiff's bar is the most welcoming, the most sharing, the most likely to say, come in, I will teach you to do what I do. Uh, and I'll fund the case and you know we'll split the fee however we're going to split it but I, I found that it's for me of all the areas I've gotten into and we're trying to change the trucking and there's some good people you know, the leaders Joe Freed and Michael Leeserman especially but other leaders in the trucking groups that are trying to change it right. to become more of that sharing uh, of knowledge but I, I think that if you have such a case and you've not done them before or you've, you're like me you've done them before but you don't have the time to maybe do a particular case the right way I mean, bring in a partner. Well, Mike, like I see you almost like as an older brother or mentors, like you clerked for Judge Garza, I clerked for Judge Garza. You became a plaintiff's attorney, I became a plaintiff's attorney. You went to Spence's, uh, the ranch, I went to the ranch. I, I don't even know if you remember, you and I did my second case together. We did a Jimmy that Joe Freed referred to some lawyer, Joe, some lawyers in Atlanta called Joe Freed to do it. Joe Freed didn't want to do it. Joe Freed called me, and I brought you in to show. Hey, how do we do this? This is what we do together. It was a white uh, yeah. GMC Jimmy case. That's right. I, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, it was a roof crusher man who passed away. We did that case together, and that's a perfect example of how 
the sharing that does or the camaraderie that does go on. I'm not saying that everybody in the auto product space is wonderful, but I think we do have a disproportionate amount of lawyers that are willing to share and oftentimes will share without any expectation of compensation. Yeah, I think I wouldn't say every single auto plaintiff auto products lawyer is person, but I will say the culture is a culture of sharing, a culture of cooperation, and those that that aren't that way stick out and are not there's like a social penalty for not being that way. Absolutely, because the reality is, and again, if we come back to serving our clients, if an attorney in California gets a bad ruling, if you have that same vehicle or that same defect or that same tire in Texas, I promise you that that manufacturer is going to show you that ruling in California. But you're like, hey, that happened in California. This is Texas. They don't care. Yep. And nine out of ten times, neither does the judge who's looking at it. And so if you really have an incentive to help your own clients, you want every other attorney with a similar type of case to be successful because what happens to them is brought to bear on your folks. So if somebody, one of our listeners, wants to get a hold of you either because, you know, they have some more questions about the autonomous vehicle stuff or maybe they have a case they want to work on or talk to you about, what's the best way to find you? Um, so last year I had 120 flights, and that is verifiable on United. <laughs> Um, I feel that uh, although I office there in, in McAllen, that I'm on the road a bunch. Uh, and so email winds up being probably the best way to get in touch with me, and that's uh, jcg at jcglf. That's L is in law, F is in firm, dot com. Uh, my mobile number is 956-250-4567. Uh, I might not answer the phone, but uh, eventually I'll get you, I'll call you back. And, and look, if you've got a real problem and somebody's hurt, uh, and I can help you help them, that serves my personal mission. You know, that it, uh, I do this. Uh, I struggled with the plaintiff's practice initially. I, I really did kind of psychologically, and the way how I came to it was that it was very much like a physician, is that our job is to make our clients' lives better. And uh, I don't have to necessarily get paid in every single case, but if I'm making people's lives better, everything will take care of itself. And if you've got a case, I don't care if it's in my backyard. I will help you if I can so that you can make somebody's life better. Thank you so much, Ulan. I really appreciate you coming on. No, thank you, Michael. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you're a regular listener, be sure to visit our website, www.triallawyernation.com, to opt into our mailing list and stay updated on our new episodes. And if you have a Facebook account, send us a request to join our private group called Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle. This exclusive group will allow you to hear about our podcast before the air, interact with the show, and get a sneak peek at some of the behind the scenes moments. If you're not on Facebook, you can always contact us via email at podcast at triallawyernation.com. I love to hear from all of you, so please continue to send us emails. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Trial Lawyer Nation is proud to partner with Trial Guides, leader in continuing education for civil plaintiff and criminal defense trial lawyers, with books, DVDs, CLEs, live webinars, and more. Visit trialguides.com and use code TLN19 at checkout to receive our exclusive podcast discount on any Trial Guides products. That's TLN for Trial Lawyer Nation and the number 19. Discount expires August 31st, 2019.
We look forward to talking with you again soon as we continue to explore powerful insights from our amazing host and remarkable guests here on Trial Lawyer Nation. Until then, please be sure to subscribe and review this podcast on iTunes or your favorite listening app so we can continue to reach more listeners. Visit us at www.triallawyernation.com to send us a message, listen to previous podcasts, or learn more about Michael Cowan and our guests. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.